our practice, here is a very dynamic living process out of which uh, new ways of seeing and understanding emerge. Every one of you that I've seen today really uh, has met insights. Whether we know it or not, there is an understanding which really manifests from this life flow of experience, which we discover progressively through clear observation. It's a possibility of opening and accepting to life just as it is, seeing the way things are. And I think that as we practice, we are gradually much more comfortable in just being with what is, rather than trying again and again endlessly to become someone else, to want something else, to want something other. And of course, we'll still meet this over and over again. Yet there's a relationship with which um, there is an understanding where we meet qualities of heart and mind that help us just stay focused. And these heart and mind quality really represent the core, the essence of what the Buddha taught, of what this teaching is all about. So very naturally, there are manifestations of wholesome qualities that we can count on, that we can take uh, by the hand, you can say, that will nurture our practice. And tonight I'd like to talk about some of these qualities, which are called the factors of awakening. No less than that. (laughs) Factors of awakening, meaning that they support the practice in a very wholesome way. Factors that are already present in the mind and heart. It's not that they come from somewhere else. The practice just reveals them as we are cultivating mindfulness. There's a deepening of these factors, and there's a clarification which leads us to really notice, oh, yeah, this factor is present, and maybe this one is. And in another moment, there will be another one which is present. So here on retreat, we can come to sense how these qualities of mind operate with one another, how they can also be cultivated once they're seen here in a very specific circumstance and definitely uh, in a way that we will see them very, very clearly over and over again, these factors of mind can also be cultivated and they can be our companions throughout our life. They are therefore very positive spiritual qualities. And it's said that they are present uh, in a way that they do not disappear from one who is awakened. The Buddha's quality is to have these at hand in any moment. And yet there is also possibility of cultivating this. We nourish and we can access these qualities when we are practicing in the way that we are. So what are they? Well, of course, 
you'll probably guess that mindfulness <laughs> is the foundation for all the other ones to emerge. Um, mindfulness, of course, is the one that will balance the other ones. There's mindfulness stands alone. It's really the one that will bring forth three arousing or energizing factors of mind, which are investigation or inquiry, energy, sometimes called effort or perseverance or strength of heart, courage of heart, whatever you want to qualify that quality which um, represents a continuity of interest. And then there's rapture, meaning the joy, the quality that is definitely pleasant, which eases our practice. So these three arousing factors of mind are balanced with three other calming factors, which are tranquility or calm, concentration or steadiness of mind, and equanimity. So you see that it's really important to understand that they will appear in our practice. One might be really apparent and another will not be, yet they definitely nurture one another. And there's a possibility to see them arise altogether. One will nurture the next. So tonight I'd like to speak about the three first arousing qualities. Next week, I'll speak about the three calming ones. So these mental qualities are present or absent in the mind, moment after moment, exactly in the same way that we can say that greed, hatred, and delusion are present or absent. They come and go. Sometimes we will have the presence, a very clear presence of greed or hatred, aversion, or delusion in the mind, and it's important to see it just for what it is. And sometimes we'll have these beautiful qualities of mind, factors of awakening, of just pure mindfulness or investigation or energy, just be present. Now, it's important to really reflect and remember that they're not personal. That's why they come and they go. They don't belong to anyone. They arise due to certain causes and conditions, like any other quality in the mind. But when we practice with care, with diligence, and have mindfulness as a foundation, very naturally, these will ripen, each one of them at different times. They also can appear as a unity of factors coming together. And gradually, what happens is that with the frequency of mindfulness really being sharp and present, there is a way that the unwholesome states of mind greed, hatred, delusion, or all the hindrances that we often speak of, very slowly diminish. They may appear, but they won't take the whole space in the mind and heart. 
will be able, with the support of these qualities, just to see greed as greed. And it will definitely be another relationship in the practice. I'd like to read a little bit of the sutra that speaks of these seven factors and how the Buddha speaks of them. He just, in a way, very systematically shows us how they ripen. Bhikkhus, or yogis, on whatever occasion a bhikkhu or a yogi abides contemplating the body as body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mind objects as mind objects, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world on that occasion, unremitting mindfulness is established in him. Abiding thus, mindful, he investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. In one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, tireless energy is aroused. In one who has aroused energy, unworldly joy, rapture, arises. In one who is rapturous, the body and mind become tranquil. In one whose body is tranquil and who feels gladness, the mind becomes steady, concentrated. He closely looks on with equanimity at the mind. This is how the four foundations of mindfulness, developed and cultivated, fulfill the seven factors of awakening. So you see how incredibly simple, to me, at least to my mind, (laughs) there's a great simplicity. If one is mindful, meaning the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, mindful of mind objects, and mindful of the dhammas, these just will nourish and bring fruit. The fruit is the seven factors of awakening, as simple as that. So definitely they are being nourished moment after moment as we are present. It's said that the seven factors of awakening are presented in the sutras as being really very, very deep healing powers. And often when monks would be sick, the Buddha would recommend for these monks to reflect on these factors of awakening, to reflect on these qualities of steadiness, investigation, energy, tranquility, to pacify the mind, to bring the mind towards equanimity. Even himself was not at all um, prevented from illness. The Buddha had a lot of backache, and many, many times we hear that he was in pain, in a lot of body pain. And another one of his disciples remembers, reminds the Buddha, remember, you tell us about the factors of awakening. Please cultivate these factors right now for yourself, Buddha. And sure enough, certainly there is an ease in the mind that comes about. It's also said that the celestial beings, the devas, 
really often visit the places where these teachings are offered. So you might want to watch for the devas tonight, just for the sake that they are so happy that human beings can hear teachings that will bring forth equanimity, ease in the mind, rather than just be constantly attacked by pain that we know well. (laughs) So they are beautiful qualities of mind and heart. So, of course, I'll begin with mindfulness. There's no way that I can't talk about mindfulness in a teaching like this one. Um, It has the role here of standing on its own, meaning that it is the cause for the other six to arise. But it also has the really very important (laughs) um, meaning to keep the mind in balance. It is mindfulness that will rebalance the mind if there's, for example, too much energy. And energy can lead to restlessness. So therefore, if we sense agitation or restlessness in the mind, if there's enough mindfulness, just that mindfulness of noticing, oh, restlessness, very clearly there's a rebalancing factor from the sake of mindfulness that will just refocus the um, mindfulness in a good way, in a way that will help us just stay steady and continue with our practice. So mindfulness is never in excess. We can never have too much of mindfulness, and it's the only one in a way that, uh, with equanimity, that we can never have too much of. It's just so powerful, and we hear this over and over again, that it's mindfulness that we need to cultivate moment by moment. Why? Because it brings us to wisdom. In this contest, mindfulness has three functions, you can say. It just allows one to see what is. It has this mirror-like reflection of allowing us to see just purely what is present. And that can be a mind state, it can be a sensation, it can be a thought, an emotion, a feeling tone, pleasant or unpleasant. What it meant by that is that there isn't the overlay, of course, that may come, but there isn't at first that overlay of interpretation, of judgment, of commentary, that comes in so quickly, and that I'm sure we see so much of the time. But that purity of mindfulness, just at first, you can say is a connection which is pre-verbal. It's wordless, in a way. There isn't the need for a concept to allow us to meet whatever experience is shown to us. And that is why it's said that it's just the purity of mindfulness which reflects the experience just as it is. The second function is that mindfulness develops all the other factors of awakening very naturally. That we do not need to worry about, oh, is equanimity present? Is concentration present? Is investigation present? Mindfulness will take care. If we really nourish and take care of our mindfulness moment to moment, 
very clearly there is going to be this quality which will cultivate interest because it has that factor of purity of mind that when we're mindful there is spontaneous interest in the mind and therefore this will lead to steadiness, calm, tranquility and equanimity. So mindfulness is heightened by mindfulness itself. Often we're asked, but how can I be more mindful? (laughs) There's that question, you know, incessant from yogis, what brings up mindfulness? What is the cause for mindfulness? Well, what mindfulness is caused by is mindfulness itself. (laughs) And that is very, very simple. So we think something else is going to help us be more mindful. Well, mindfulness really supports itself. Of course, there are other conditions, causes, initial motivation already to um, really understand what Neoshan talked about, right understanding that we are here to really see things as they are. So the initial cause or condition will be the motivation to see clearly, right understanding. But in the process of meditating, meaning really Oh, in the process of development of the mind, there is really a purpose and a sole purpose that is bringing mindfulness to the mind as frequently as we can. So mindfulness or careful attention sees and keeps looking no matter what is seen. It can really be that we are in the face of grasping or aversion or really feeling a very painful sensation. And there's a way that there's a possibility to maybe open our awareness, open the possibility of seeing the pain just as it is without the intention of moving away, but giving ourselves enough space to feel steady and to investigate it in a way that will be fruitful, rather than overreact or nourish more reactivity. And this, of course, will be seen as we are practicing. There's going to be so many times that we're going to think, you know, oh, I can't do this. And yet it's in the process of relating to the practice that we sense how these factors of awakening really become forces for us. It's not a quality that we can accumulate once and for all. Unfortunately, it's not if we're mindful for one moment that it's going to stay like this for the next hour and we don't need to think about it. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. So it's really staying very close to nourishing and to to care. The quality, I think, of care, of sensitivity, is much more valuable than the quality of forcing, telling the mind that it needs to stay present. That often gives a reaction of um, the reverse of the fruit. And it's so important that we're only committing to this practice to wake up. It's to realize that we are 
so often in the depth of sleep, which here sleep means the equivalent of ignorance, of delusion, just not knowing what is happening in our mind, in our heart, what causes pain. And that's exactly why we are here just to commit to wake up. There's no more meaning than that. The Buddha himself just said, we're here to wake up from the forces of grasping and ignorance. There's a story that really woke me up (laughs) in my own practice when I was um, again practicing with Saida Upandita. I mentioned him in my last talk, but I did quite a fair amount of practice with him. And um, one of the days that um, I had an interview, and we had interviews every day, you know, in this um, form, it's very important to report. Often you're told just to note and to keep on going, and there's not much (laughs) of a... uh, an advice given to you, yet there was that day uh, a question that was um, asked to me from Sayadaw Pandita. He said, how many moments, mind moments, are you missing in a sitting? So mind moments. And so I said, oh, well, (laughs) um, I don't know. You know, I was just so stunned by the question about mind moments. And then when you know that from a clap of a finger like this, there's 70,000 mind moments, right? So definitely there were probably many mind moments that I was missing. But I was kind of startled, and um, this response didn't seem to satisfy him because, of course, I couldn't give an answer. And so it was the end of my interview. Said, this is the end of your interview. Okay. (laughs) I left the room not feeling very satisfied. You know, there was, of course, the sense of self showing up, saying, okay, you didn't clearly didn't give the right answer. What was the right answer? (laughs) Well, fortunately, the next day I had an interview with Saido Vivekananda, who, of course, is clearly more, uh, is easier to uh, relate to at least for my... (laughs) And so I just told him, you know, oh, this happened, and he knew. Before I even opened my mouth, he said, oh, what happened yesterday? (laughs) And um, I had the the wisdom to say, well, you know, I wasn't able to answer to that question about how many my moments, and I was just so startled. And he said, well, not being able to respond to a question like this means that we're not mindful at all. And that, from the standpoint of Saito Upandita, it really was a very great waking up call, right? <laughs> Committing to the practice in the best way possible is one thing, but um, to not know how much I was absent, right? Because this is exactly how many mind moments are you missing, was clearly, in a way, uh, asking me, well, how much of the time are you not present. And um, probably I could have, after a while, you know, made up an answer or found something, but in that moment, there was no, nothing that came out of my mind. 
But what it brought up was instead of self-judgment or blame or wherever, you know, one can go in that kind of situation <laughs> and, of course, um, feel hopeless and despair and the whole circle and <laughs> of samsara whirling around, I cared to connect. And I thought, okay, this is just a teaching to show me that I need to connect, that next time when I'm asked that question, I really can answer that it's possible for me to know, more or less at least, how much I'm absent. And I think that what Saito was trying to say was to bring me to really the value of mindfulness, of really sensing that insight or seeing things as they are, right understanding that Miyoshin talked about, can only happen if we really care to see the truth. That it's not a kind of more or less presence, you know, about to but not really connecting. And it doesn't mean that we need to strive in any way. But there's just the sense of, okay, the motivation to care to connect which probably the full commitment wasn't present at that time in that interview. And he just woke me up, and it was very simple because the next time I had an interview, I had a lot to report. (laughs) And there was definitely a lot I had seen, much more than in the previous week. What this means is insight can come about when we really relate to the moment in the most simple matter. We can't know or understand when we just don't connect to relate to the simplicity of what is present. There's so much of the time that we interpret, that we think about being mindful, and probably that's a lot of what I was doing then in that moment. And thinking about being mindful is a very great idea. <laughs> but <laughs> it's not being mindful. And, and that difference is huge. And I think that until we really reflect on that difference for ourselves in our own experience and in our practice, it won't really connect to the level of Okay, putting down the layer of interpretation, of judgment, of really wanting to see something else than what is emerging. And if all of these experiences happen, judging will happen, commenting will happen, evaluate will happen, comparing to other yogis might happen, then that's the experience we want to see. We can totally connect with that comparing mind totally connect with that judging mind. That is the fullness of presence. So it's not about having specific experiences. It's really allowing oneself to say, hey, can I meet this too? And this too. Just from the sake of caring. So every moment there's a fullness of presence, no matter what is happening in our practice. There is that potential for awakening, which leads us very, very naturally to the second factor of awakening. They're very linked. 
which is investigation or inquiry. Dhamma vichaya, which means investigating the Dhamma, the nature of mind and body. No longer from that layer or level of conceptual mind, using the thinking mind to see clearly, but to drop to that level of mindfulness that sees with wisdom, that can understand what is present in a direct way. And often we say direct steering, direct experiencing, meaning directly meeting that sensation rather than, oh, there's a knee pain. It's dropping down to that layer of how does it feel? Vibration, pressure, tingling, whatever it is, pleasant, unpleasant. And it can be a very subtle difference. And that's what is meant by investigating. There's a penetrative quality that we drop down to the level of experience. So can we ask the question, what is really happening now? What is the quality of the experience? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? That knowing is revealed by awareness itself, not by my interpretation of the experience. So it implies a big difference. What it implies is that we don't know what we're going to meet. We don't know. Often we think we know, and that's why there isn't that intimacy, that meeting. And a big part of investigation is having this willingness to not know, to not think that, oh, yeah, I know the breath. I've seen it 10 million times. (laughs) This breath is going to be the same as the one I saw yesterday and the one before. And there's such a way that there is an inclination for us all of the mind going in that direction and therefore not being interested Practice requires a very clear sense of the beginner's mind. And it's hard at times to really have the willingness to just be a beginner in each moment. It requires such a a sincerity of heart to be interested in each moment by what is happening just for the sake of being interested and not for the sake of a result, not for the sake of wanting to be done. (laughs) This life process is such a beautiful one and that when we connect fully, there's the Dhamma revealing itself. In this moment, there is no need for another experience. It is just what it is And it reveals itself, and the wisdom, the understanding, just appears. So it's also a way that we cannot pretend. And so often, at least for my own sake, I know that in practice there's so many ways, hidden ways, (laughs) that we want to pretend that something 
is not happening or we deny that there is uh, something that we'd like to ignore. And in many ways, I've been practicing these last two years now with Saida Utejaniya that Miyoshin mentioned the other night. And it's true that there is so much more relaxation or less striving in the form that he emphasizes because he says that we can't force the mind in any way to do something out of will. But it can only be out of interest. And he talks about intelligent awareness. Intelligent awareness meaning an awareness of mindfulness that really is interested, that is investigating. And there's a great power of investigation in the way that he teaches mindfulness and practice. And in the very same way, he will tell us, you know, even though you can be very more relaxed in your practice, just doing it moment after moment, really connecting, yet it has to happen every moment. Notice what the mind is saying. Notice how the mind is relating. If there's greed, meet the greed. If there's aversion, know that there's aversion. He's very keen on really looking at the defilements just for what they are. Not to make a whole story out of them, but to not pretend. And that means that if there is a sensation in the body and uh, we're really keenly very looking and, and very close to the sensation, but he'll ask you, with what kind of mind are you relating to this sensation? What is the relationship? And then if it's one of being aversive to that sensation because it's unpleasant, then you move away from that sensation and you notice the mind that is watching. There's a, also an understanding, an investigation, an inquiry of how is the mind relating to this experience from the side of awareness. So what is the quality of mindfulness? What is the quality of awareness? The practice then becomes very alive. I found that it brought so much more freshness and curiosity in the mind itself of really emphasizing more the direct experience in those moments when it reveals how the mind is relating to whatever is experienced. I even noticed (laughs) in my last time in Burma that as I was um, doing my walking meditation, um, very, very mindfully, he doesn't emphasize slow movement, which is, (laughs) to my mind, already comfort. (laughs) Um, There's not only slow walking, but he says, really, be totally aware, present, as you are moving around to the quality, emphasizing the quality of presence, of noticing what is happening. And it opened up a whole area of how there were probably quite a number of walking periods where I had this boredom in the mind. 
which I had absolutely not seen because I was just so focused on sensations of leg, movement of feet, movement of the lower part of the body. And it was just incredibly insightful to notice, oh, there is boredom here. Then you really need to shift the attention, the mindfulness, and investigate, hey, how is this boredom manifesting? What does it feel like? And getting interested in the boredom. It doesn't mean that we want the boredom to go away, but definitely the connection with boredom brought another quality in the mind, and there was a manifestation of interest where I didn't need to move away and have that feeling of aversion to the walking practice, which I probably had for quite some time. The boredom was revealing an underlayer of pulling away, of aversion. Very subtle, very, very, very subtle in the mind. So subtle, it wasn't a thought. It was just like energetically. (laughs) You know how practice can become so subtle when one is really focused and in the exploration So that brought wisdom and a huge insight of, oh, wow, the mind here is really allowing for change to happen. Boredom really turned into interest. And this was the truth, just manifesting, this living process of allowing change to appear rather than staying at a distance which was a kind of disconnection and looking at the sensations but not knowing what the mind was about to reveal. So the mood of the mind, you can say, he often talks about the mood of the mind. With what mood are you practicing with? How much is the mood of the mind causing suffering? This definitely brings us to understand that with mindfulness and that level of investigation, of noticing just what is apparent moment after moment, there's a purity in the seeing, which we can also call wise attention. That wise attention will reveal itself very clearly and will reveal the characteristics of existence, that nothing stays the same, that really moment by moment, mind moments, <laughs> as Saito Pandita would say, there is changing, manifesting conditions, changing sensation, changing sound, changing sight, thoughts, emotions. It's so rapid. It's so, it's such a dynamic process, and it's not personal. And that's exactly why there's a possibility of freeing the mind, because there's no one to whom this is happening. There's no living being which is constantly the same. 
that it's happening to. There's awareness and all these different experiences changing moment after moment. So the first characteristic is anicca, change, impermanence. And we really begin to sense that level of impermanence. And I talked about it last week, saying that thanks to impermanence, there's a possibility of freedom. Then there's the clear unsatisfactoriness, the dukkha, because there's nothing that we really can take for something that we can hold on to. When it's pleasant, we want it to stay. Not possible. It's going to change. There's other things that are going to happen. When it's unpleasant, we want it to change. We're glad. We want it to be pleasant. Yet, all in all, there's such a revelation in seeing that because it changes, there's definitely, in the conditioning world, no lasting satisfactoriness. But yet, the third characteristic of existence is that it's not personal. There is no self-entity lasting more than one moment. The moment of consciousness meeting or awareness meeting different types of experience that come and go. This is the doorway to liberation. And here again, we'll investigate in a way that if we are really interested in freedom, investigate the Dhamma. The Dhamma to the level of allowing impermanence to happen. Allowing a sensation to be just sensation and not my pain. Allowing the dukkha, the felt sense of unsatisfactoriness, touch us. Not We don't need to look for it. It's going to happen in the process of the practice. What is extraordinary is these factors of awakening allow us to stay focused. It's not, we may hear this and maybe fear or anxiety or worry can come up. Oh my goodness, you know. (laughs) Where is this going? But because of the great power of mindfulness and all these qualities that emerge, there's the possibility of staying in focus. And not only that, the interest gives us an extremely powerful zeal or courage or energy that we want to keep looking. There is such a way that it's so pure. The Dhamma is just manifesting moment after moment that it gives us the courage to face experience that we would never face conceptually with our thinking mind. And this sense of steadiness of really relating enables another layer of acceptance, of really meeting things as they are. Even if they become difficult, suddenly, oh, we can be with this bodily pain or this sensation or mind state. And there's truly a possibility of staying with it, which we probably didn't have a few weeks ago if we 
or here for a time, or maybe at home when we practice on a daily basis because of the powerful cultivation of these qualities. The Dalai Lama consistently reminds us that the places that hurt the most or that are the most difficult to face are the ones that will wake us up the most. And he's seen this, definitely. It's not, you know, just a nice thought that um, he had in his mind. It's so incredibly powerful that he says when we are spiritually engaged, this is a spiritual engagement. There is a kind of commitment of really, we are here. It's definitely a commitment. We are engaged in a practice which really has so much depth, the depth of full liberation. It's possible. One of the persons that most reveal that possibility is, for me, Deepama, the great Indian teacher, yogi, who lived in Calcutta. There's a little book of hers that really talks about how she had so much courage to face every single type of suffering that one can face, the loss of dear ones, a very uh, severe illness, and yet practice really healed her in such an incredible way that she was so convinced from the inside, from her own experience, that she would tell to people, nothing can prevent you from not practicing. Nothing can prevent you from seeing the truth. Absolutely nothing. And she meant it with her whole heart. She says, this life of yours, this situation is so precious. Everything is worthy of our attention because everything leads to liberation. And that is incredibly powerful when we can sense this from the inside. Proust, the writer, says, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeing new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And that's exactly what we have here. There's a way that we're asked to see directly with new eyes, eyes that don't know. That's all, that have not seen what this inner life is about. So energy comes and goes like any other mental factor. It's also very, very wise to know that energy can be in excess and energy can lack. And there's nothing that we need to do about this. It's just, again, not personal. The energy is definitely born out of strength of heart, but physical energy comes and goes. And so we can't decide for ourselves that we're going to be energized for the whole day that we're going to be practicing. That would really reinforce the mind of reactivity. But we can keep just being steady and relaxed in the way that we can allow things to come and go. And not take pride when there is a very strong energy. 
it's amazing how we can take it so personally that just because of a little bit more energy, <laughs> we feel that we're such a good yogi, you know, and we're going to sit here for the next three hours, and uh, we're the yogi that stood in the meditation hall the longest, right? <laughs> it's just so incredible how we take energy to be so personal. When there's a drop of energy, where is our pride here, you know? Oh, we want out after five minutes. I can't do this. I'm the worst yogi here. And then we start comparing with other yogis. And my practice then is not worth anything. It's all born out of conditions that come and go. A little bit of energy, a lot of energy. Why do we identify with a good energy level? Why do we identify with a low energy level? Because we take it personally. So to see, where is I? Where is me in this process? Look, what is the mind state that reveals a self when there is the thought, oh, I'm so good or I'm so bad in relationship to the energy? Really, this is where one can reveal a lot of wisdom. And this is how we just keep showing up. Not much energy, a lot of energy. Just keep showing up. That's all we need to do. Just stay present. Sometimes when there's a lot of energy, we'll be more receptive, right? We can relax back, just stay settled, and the momentum is just carrying us along. Mindfulness is probably pretty present. When there's low energy, maybe the mindfulness needs to be activated a little bit, meaning that it requires just a little more effort to allow one to just cope, in a way, (laughs) with the difficult mind state that can appear when energy is low. In any way, I think it's very important not to try to force the process. And if we do try to force the process, notice it. It really isn't helpful. The little energy that is present, if we force, we're already losing it. It's, it's kind of a lack of energy that is happening. So staying really in a way that we balance our mindfulness with wisdom. There's a little poem from Kabir that I'd like to share. It says, don't go outside your house to see flowers, my friend. Don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body, there are flowers. One flower has a thousand petals. That will do for a place to sit. Sitting there, you will have a glimpse of beauty. Inside the body and out of it. Before gardens and after gardens. Kabir. It's all happening here and now. We don't need to force the petals open. We know that it would hurt the flower. It hurts our heart when there is 
this lack of sensitivity and care. So settling back and living the practice from that space of being with what is. Energy invites the last of the three arousing, energizing factors, which is rapture. And that is a spiritual quality which is born in the course of practice out of gladness. There's mindfulness, there's interest, there's energy, and very naturally this one comes forth. Gladness, lightness of body and mind, joy to continue, to persevere. And it's not born out of sense pleasure. It's not dependent on any condition. We can be really in great pain and rapture is present. It's quite amazing. Um, But it comes just as a progression in the practice as we are keeping connecting and really seeing the truth. The mind and heart are steady and there's an openness that just invites that quality of heart and mind. And what it does is that whatever is seen there, it's absolutely okay. This too, I can see, and this too. And we stay interested in the process. And therefore, wisdom then naturally arises from seeing the truth. Now, it's important to remember that there are three calming factors. (laughs) So we are here full of energy. But um, because I've talked probably a lot of the energizing factors, please remember that these are balanced out with three calming factors, which are tranquility, or calm, concentration, and equanimity. So these three arousing or energizing factors are not all the factors of awakening. They do need to be balanced with the three calming factors that I'll talk about next week. And just to end, if you notice in your practice that rapture is very present, it's very important to stay mindful. We can very easily be attached to the rapture that emerges in the practice, be it a pleasant physical sensation, lightness, floating feeling, really a lot of um, exquisite, delightful (laughs) sensation. If there's rapture in excess, it very easily moves into restlessness, over-excitement, and there's a loss of balance in the practice. That's why tranquility needs to come forth to balance out the rapture. So the beauty and love of the truth of the Dhamma is revealed to us in each moment that we are present. It's quite simple. And it's important that we really relate to this teaching with wisdom, that we can't force ourselves with will to be present. I want to be present. I want to be. 
it won't work, right? <laughs> um, it can only work from that space of care and intimacy and connection, interest with what is arising. And then very naturally, we'll see things as they are. And the mind is liberated from contraction, from bondage. I'd like to close with a line by T.S. Eliot. He says, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. The end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Just like Mayoshin said a few days ago, it's not moving out of ourselves. It's really finding that place of the original home, being at home. Let's sit for a few seconds. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.